Today is April 5th, 2021. Hi, my name is Kafia. I'm a fourth year medical student and I'm here to give you a brief introduction to this episode. Hi, I'm Dr. Lundquist. I'm a PGY-1, almost PGY-2, here at Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program. Today, we're gonna to be talking a little bit about screening for lung cancer, hearing loss, carotid artery stenosis, and Kafia is gonna to explain to us the use of bupropion and naltrexone in methamphetamine abuse. Bakersfield, California has a meth epidemic currently ravaging this area. We as healthcare workers believe we can spot somebody addicted to meth from a mile away by their characteristic older than stated age appearance and obvious meth mouth. However, the actual scope of the epidemic is much larger. It's not just people who are experiencing homelessness that are addicted to and dying from meth. I saw while volunteering at a needle exchange at Wheel Park, people getting out of nice looking cars, wearing clean pressed clothes with sharp containers full of used needles ready to exchange. One man even had a teacup poodle in tow. It's clear that meth can affect anybody. That's pretty shocking to say the least. Between May 10th and June 10th, 2014, 31.8% of randomly selected patients in the ED of Kern Medical admitted to having used methamphetamine at least once in their life. It's not just the individual who's addicted to meth who is affected. 36.1% of children removed from their home by Child Protective Services in Kern County during the month of May 2014 were cases that involved methamphetamine use. Meth accounted for nearly 75% of all drugs seized by the Bakersfield Police Department. Statewide, meth kills more Californians than any single opioid alone. Amphetamine overdose deaths have increased 212% from 777 in 2012 to 2,427 in 2018 in California. In 2020, Kern County had more than double the rate of deaths related to overdose of psychostimulants, which, of which meth was the dominant drug, compared to the state of California. In California, it was 20.48 per 100,000 residents, and in Kern County, it was 8.21 out of 100,000 residents. This devastating problem, unfortunately, does not have a currently FDA-approved drug to treat it but a promising study called Accelerated Development of Addictive Treatment for Methamphetamine Disorder, also known as ADAPT-2, that's a lot easier to say, assessed the efficacy of combined bupropion and naltrexone for the treatment of meth use disorder. Bupropion meliorates the dysphoria of meth withdrawal that drives continued use, while naltrexone decreases cravings, therefore preventing relapse, as it does with alcohol use disorder. A total of 403 participants with nearly daily meth use were included in the two-stage randomized double-blind trial conducted at eight different sites from May 23, 2017 to July 25, 2019. The efficacy of extended-release injectable naltrexone, which was dosed at 300 milligrams every three weeks, combined with once-daily oral extended-release bupropion, 400 milligrams was dosed, was evaluated as compared to placebo. The results of the study showed, drumroll, 13.6% response rate in the naltrexone bupropion group and only 
are about 2.5% response with placebo. A response was defined as at least three meth-negative urine samples out of four samples obtained at the end of each of the two stages. The trial concluded that although the response rate among participants that received naltrexone and bupropion was low, it was at least higher than among participants who received placebo. Although the ADAPT2 trial did not provide any recommendations that can be adapted to clinical practice, it serves as a starting point for further research of the additive or synergetic effects of bupropion and naltrexone in the treatment of methyl disorder. Hopefully, it would also serve as a catalyst for more pioneering research regarding the legitimization of meth use disorder as a treatable disease with major medical, psychiatric, socioeconomic, and legal consequences. Clinicians should stay up to date with research regarding meth use disorder such as ADAPT2, as it is our duty to understand the health crises that affect our patients on a daily basis and tools we can use to treat them. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. Hello, I am Dr. Thone. I'm here to present the question of the month. This is a 69-year-old male patient who has a history of controlled hypertension. He comes to an urgent care clinic for acute onset of fever, 102 degrees Fahrenheit, cough, and shortness of breath, which has progressively worsened over the last three days. He does not smoke, but uses recreational marijuana once a month and drinks one to two beers a week. He goes to the doctor once a year for checkups. He takes Benazapril 10 milligrams daily for his hypertension. He does not believe in vaccines and his last shot was a tetanus shot five years ago. No surgical history. He retired as an accountant five years ago. Vital signs are normal except for tachycardia of 110, his baseline 85, and temperature of 101.5 degrees Fahrenheit, 38.6 degrees Celsius. He has bibasilar crackles on auscultation. You perform labs in the clinic and he has a white count of 13.5 and a chest x-ray shows a right lower lobe consolidation. He has a negative rapid COVID-19 test. What are your top three differential diagnoses and what is the acute management of this patient's condition? Let's repeat the question. What are your top three differential diagnoses, and what is the acute management of a 69-year-old male, non-smoker, who has fever, cough, shortness of breath, tachycardia, bibasilar crackles, elevated white blood cell count, a right lower lobe consolidation, and a negative rapid COVID-19 test? Send us your answer before May 7, 2021 to R. B residency at Clinica Sierra Vista.org. And the best answer will win a prize.
Today's two for two for two special, two lungs, two ears, two carotids, and no symptoms. Let's talk recommendations for the asymptomatic. I'll be your host, that's me, Dr. Savelli with a C, and Dr. Lundquist. It's a sale on free information delivered to you on preventative care. Two are important at 50 years of age, and all are important for you to know. Let's start with the two ears with which you have tuned in to this podcast with and are intensely hearing my voice with. How many hertz do you think I'm speaking at? Can you hear me easily? Do you need to turn up the volume? Hearing loss in older adults. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you very well, Dr. Savelli. This is Dr. Lundquist. <clears throat> so uh, what is, I'm sorry, what is the definition of hearing loss? That is a great question, Dr. Lundquist. So to answer this, let's first talk hertz and decibels. Many studies and guidelines define mild hearing loss as the inability to hear frequencies associated with speech um, that is processed under 25 decibels and moderate hearing loss as the inability to hear those frequencies under 40 decibels. The most important range for speech processing is typically 500 to 4,000 hertz. So to check hearing, we often use pure tone audiometry, which is the most standard quantitative measurement. However, this is not a perfect test. There is often discordance between objectively measured deficits and subjective perceptions of hearing problems. In one study, one in five persons who reported hearing loss had a normal hearing test result, while 6% of those with severe hearing loss detected on audiometry did not report feeling that they had any hearing loss. Hmm, I wonder if their significant other would agree with the 6% who self-reported no hearing loss but failed the hearing test. That'd be a great study, actually. Are there risk factors we should know? <laughs> it would be a great study. Um, and yes, the number one risk factor for hearing loss is increasing age. Hearing loss increases with age after 50, attributable to normal degeneration of hair cells in the ear. This leads to the most common cause of hearing loss in older adults, presbycusis. Presbycusis is your diagnosis for patients with gradual worsening of perceived high-frequency tones. Presbycusis. If I identify presbycusis, what are the recommendations? Well, on March 23, 2021, for asymptomatic adults 50 years or older with age-related hearing loss, the USPSTF published a statement that reconfirmed the 2012 recommendations. That is, current evidence is insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and harms of screening for hearing loss in older adults. This statement aligns with the AAFP and is referenced in their practice guidelines. Maybe I didn't hear you right, but you're telling me that I don't need any additional testing on my patients 50 or older? Well, it just depends. If the physical exam is normal, you can order a hearing test, especially if the patient requests um, or mentions that they can't hear very well. They have um, complaints of not hearing uh, in conversation like they used to. But really, there is insufficient ev evidence by the USPS task force, and the AAFP agrees. And remember, there's a reasonable amount of hearing loss that comes with age. 
So this recommendation applies to asymptomatic older adults aged greater than 50 with age-related sensorineural hearing loss who have not noticed any issues with their hearing. It excludes adults with conductive hearing loss, congenital hearing loss, sudden hearing loss, or hearing loss caused by recent noise exposure or those reporting signs and symptoms of hearing loss. Dr. Savelli, this is music to my ears. Now, what about carotid artery screenings? Is this something I should be ordering for my patients? So let's talk about carotid artery stenosis and screening. What does the USPSTF recommend? Well, for the general adult population without symptoms, do not screen. This is a grade D recommendation for all adults without a history of stroke or neurologic signs or symptoms of a transient ischemic attack. Fascinating. Has anything changed since the 2014 recommendations by the USPSTF? <laughs> no. This is really just a reendorsement statement made in February of this year, 2021, recommitting to 2014 statements. The evidence continues to show that the harms of screening for asymptomatic carotid artery stenosis outweigh the benefits. Good to know. Is there anything else to think about? Yes, there's always something else. So the USPSTF has made other recommendations related to stroke prevention and cardiovascular health. health. So these include screening for high um, blood pressure in adults, screening for abdominal aortic aneurysm, interventions for tobacco smoking cessation, um, also including pregnant persons, interventions to promote a healthy diet and physical activity for the prevention of cardiovascular disease, and this is for patients with risk factors and those without risk factors. Aspirin use to prevent cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancer is included, as well as statin use for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Well, that's really helpful, Dr. Savelli. Thank you for that. My heart is just... Beating well? Just, it's just beating so healthy, fast. Like it's you're 21? Like I'm 21. Perfect. Can't wait to be 50. Excellent. <laughs> so since... We were talking about heart and hearing. What about lungs? Great question. I'm so happy you brought that up. Lung cancer screening was actually next on my list. So let's go over the latest as of March 9th, 2021. There are updated grade B recommendations by the USPSTF. The patients that are 50 to 80 years old with a 20-pack year history of smoking and still smoke or those who quit within 15 years, annual screening with low-dose CT is recommended. Perfect. Um, when should I stop screening, though? So you should stop screening when a person has not smoked for 15 years or has a condition that substantially limits life expectancy or limits their ability to undergo curative lung surgery. Really good to know. So what has changed? USPSTF has modified guidelines, so we are screening earlier and with lower pack years. It used to be recommended to do low-dose CT at 55 to 80, but now we are screening at 50 to 80. Also, the pack years was 30, but it is now 20 pack years that we should start screening. So screen sooner at 50 and at lower threshold of 20. Thanks so much for listening.
One more thing, you can screen male and female for lung cancer. Oh, so, excellent. Yeah, so bottom line, so we have three organs, right? We have hearing screening, insufficient grade I. We have carotid artery stenosis, grade D, do not screen. Okay. And then we have lung cancer, grade B, so screen most of your patients or okay. almost all of your patients. And there's no discrepancy towards male or female or in between, so yeah. perfect. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Why did the cookie go to the hospital? He was feeling really crummy. <laughs> Doctor, I keep hearing a ringing sound. Then answer the phone. <laughs> now we conclude our episode number 47, Hearing Carotid Lung. Dr. Savelli gave us an update on USPSTF screening in asymptomatic adults. For hearing loss, there is insufficient evidence to give a recommendation. For carotid artery stenosis, there is a grade D, meaning do not screen. And for lung cancer, it is a grade B recommendation, meaning screen your patients. Don't forget to order a low-dose CT of chest in patients of any sex older than 50 years with a 20-pack-a-year smoking history and currently smoking or quit less than 15 years ago. That's a mouthful, but once you start following the guidelines, it gets easier to recall. Remember. Even without trying, every night you go to bed being a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency@clinicaservista.org or visit our website at riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Jennifer Thone, Valerie Savelli, Kafia Art, Ariana Lundquist, Jacqueline Ui, and voluntarily unidentified medical assistants. Audio by Sarajam Ruthia. See you next week!